Good morning. In the year 2009, my friends and I had the privilege of visiting Nepal, one of the most beautiful countries on earth. It was an early morning flight. And upon, upon reaching Kathmandu, we had to wait for a few hours to catch our next flight to a city called Biratnagar. It was a small plane. You know, small planes with small windows and small seats, small trays, small people. Uh, it was a 30 minutes flight. And as soon as we boarded, I just wanted to sleep because I was tired. But as we took off, I noticed that we took off into the mountains. And these mountains were green in color, or because of the grass that covered the mountains. It was beautiful. And slowly, these green mountains began turning white. There were white mountains now, and the place was filled with huge mountains covered with snow. It was a unique experience. It was one of the most beautiful scenes I had ever seen in my life. I had never, ever seen a white mountain. It was beautiful, and I lost my sleep. Actually, Beauty killed my sleep. I was glued to the window. What I want to say is that beauty has power. It attracts. It can silence us. It can even kill your sleep. That's how powerful beauty is. It can create awe and wonder and create joy in us. It can make us desire more beauty. But here's the thing, friends. If the beauty, if the beauty of these huge, sorry, if the beauty of these huge, gigantic mountains, white mountains, green mountains, can actually silence us and could kill my sleep and create an ache in me for more white mountains, for more beauty, how much more glory will the one who created beauty possess? Think about it. He must possess greater glory than white green mountains. And the Bible tells us that God created us for that glory, the glory of God. And that true, lasting joy is found in feasting on His glory. And so my desire this morning is that as we go through Psalm 100, we will be able to see the glory of God in this psalm. And as we see His glory, that our hearts would be marked by joy and by hope, and that we would respond in joyful worship. So turn with me to Psalm 100. Here's my main point for the sermon. 
worship God joyfully because of who he is and what he has done for us. Worship God joyfully because of who he is and what he has done for us. Let's look at the first point. Worship God joyfully. And that's in verses 1, 2, and 4. The psalm is an invitation to worship God, to celebrate God. Now, what does that look like? He's calling for excitement and delight and joy in the worshiper. So he says, make a joyful noise, serve with gladness, come before him with joyful songs. Such joy and gladness is produced by beholding the glory of God. You see, seeing produces joy. There is joy in singing because joy comes first from seeing. And you see a similar scene in Psalm 66, verses 1, 2, and 3, where the psalmist says, Let the whole earth shout joyfully to God. Sing about the glory of his name. Say to God, how awe-inspiring are your works. God's glory, as is evident in his works, invokes awe in us, and it produces joy. And what is unique about this joy is that it is not centered or focused on people or things or circumstances. It is founded on God. It is God-centered. It springs from knowing God. Therefore, no matter what happens, and we may suffer and struggle with loss or pain or even experience uncertainty, joy will remain. It will last because God is the foundation and content of our joy. This joy is lasting joy because it is founded on God who is unchanging, good, and faithful. The nation of Israel had the unique privilege of being chosen by God to be his people. And they saw his glory, not only while they were in Egypt, but also in the wilderness and finally in the land of Canaan. And having seen his glory, this nation now invites all the earth, that's verse one, to know God. The invitation here to all the nations then is to see God. People should know God and be joyful. The invitation is for the joy of all people in Psalm 100 and verse 1. And so if, there is some, if there's anyone here this morning who does not know this God, if there's anyone here who has not seen his glory, and by glory I mean God's beauty, his splendor, his majesty, his uniqueness, the brilliance in his perfection. If you've not seen that, our desire is that you would see him today. We desire your joy. And so we invite you to consider the glory of God in his son Jesus this morning. In church, I pray that the glory of God in this psalm will not only fuel our faith, but also increase our joy in God. Now look carefully in verses 1, 2, and 4. 
you will see that all attention is on God here. They are not singing songs about themselves. They have no praises for their works because their joy and gladness is in the Lord. All attention is on God. So verse 1 says, shout to the Lord. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. God is the object and subject of worship. The invitation is to sing songs of joy to God about God. And so as they enter his gates, verse 4, and enter his courts, there is only praise for God. All boasting in self ends in the presence of God. And so Christian singing is joyfully loud, God-centered singing. And the reason we have songs and prayers and sermons centered on God and his son Jesus is because our joy comes from seeing Jesus who is our savior and our redeemer, our advocate, our high priest and our intercessor. We will have worshipped God truly when in our worship we boast in the mercy that we have received from heaven in Jesus Christ. Joyful, God-glorifying singing is the fruit of seeing God. We sing his glory because we have seen his glory. But what is the glory of God that we see in this song? And that leads to our second point. Who is God and what has he done for us? What is the glory of God that this psalm talks about? Let me point out three truths about God from this psalm. Three truths about God that make him look glorious in this psalm, that can instill joy in our hearts. And as we consider them, may we see God's glory and respond in joyful worship. Number one, Yahweh is creator God. Yahweh is creator God. That's verse three. The psalmist says, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. Yahweh is the name that God gave Moses when Moses asked him what his name was. God said, I am who I am. The name means that God is self-sufficient. Now, what does it mean that God is self-sufficient? It means that God does not need us. We need Him. God does not lack anything. And God is never in want. I am always in need. And I'm always dependent on God. And this, this my friends, is where humility begins. That because he is God, he is the most important person, not me. And this truth is liberating because if Yahweh is God, then I don't have to work hard to prove my greatness. I really don't have to live to make myself look great because I know that only God is significant. It's interesting that our behaviors 
tell us our perception of ourselves. They tell us how we understand and see ourselves. So in a relationship, in a relationship, when one person gets angry, he's actually saying, I deserve better treatment because I am an important person. And if you're not going to give me that honor and respect, I will threaten you with my anger. Also, in a relationship, when we choose distance over union, distance and separation, we're in other words saying, they don't deserve me in their lives. I deserve better. In other words, I'm saying, I'm really significant and important here. They don't deserve me. Now I'm an important person. It is the sin in us that makes us have wrong impressions about ourselves. It makes us think that we are more than who we really are. Well, friends, we will begin to see ourselves rightly only when we recognize that Yahweh is God and he is the most important person. But this verse also tells us that Yahweh is creator. It says it is he who made us and we are his well, if he created everything, he owns everything. And if he has created everything, then we are all accountable for how we live our lives. The Bible tells us that we were created for the glory of God. That's Romans 11. So Paul says, for from him, through him, and for him are all things. That means if things exist, things exist because of him. And if things continue to exist, they exist for him, for his glory. And so God created all things and God gave it glory from trees to mountains, from jollof rice, to ugali meal, to ribs and steak, to sinagang soup, to a hot saffron tea. From fluttering butterflies to the soaring eagle, God gave them glory. And he did that so that we will see his glory through them and enjoy his glory. So we were made for glory. And as we see his glory in creation, we are supposed to tell ourselves and others that God is glorious. And these things point us to a greater glory. We were made to be satisfied in the glory of God. But we have become glory thieves. The sin in us makes us pursue our glory. We say and do things, don't we, to get attention so that we are treated like heroes. We want to be known and possess greatness. We want people to be in awe of us. In fact, our sin has made us glory addicts, our own glory addicts. Paul Tripp, a godly pastor and a good biblical counselor, talks about three signs that reveal our addiction to self-glory. And I'm going to share that with you. Three signs 
they reveal that we are addicted to our glory. Number one, glory, glory addicts parade their righteousness. Now, like the Pharisees, they love to talk about their righteousness before others. They enjoy it when other people have great things to talk about their righteousness and applaud their righteousness. In fact, they work hard at receiving other people's acclamation by talking about their righteous acts. Where? Well, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Glory addicts parade their righteousness. Two, glory addicts talk too much. If you're more of a talker than a listener, then you are a glory addict. Glory addicts do not enjoy listening. They love to be heard. In fact, they will cut others so that they are heard. Glory addicts think they have better wisdom to offer. Their jokes are funnier. Their efforts are better. Their kids are more successful. And they are better parents. Three. Glory addicts feel self-sufficient. Because glory addicts are busy thinking and talking about themselves, they fail to see their blindness. They don't enjoy living in relationships with humility toward others and what others have to offer them. They feel that they have nothing to receive from others. Others are always in need of them. And the truth is that we are all glory addicts. All of us. Some of us love attention. We love recognition and approval. Some of us talk a lot. We don't enjoy listening. We want others to hear us. Some of us think that People can't make it without us. We don't need people, but others are in need of us. That's glory addiction. And we will be glory addicts till we see Jesus. It's only when we see his glory that we will be broken of our glory addiction. And it's through Jesus that we come to know that we were made for greater glory. And that's what the gospel does. It opens our eyes to seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And it is this gospel that helps us abandon self-glory for God's glory. And so when we look to the gospel and embrace it, what happens is that God's glory invades our hearts and rescues us from glory addiction. The gospel helps us see that we have been messed up in our perception of ourselves. And Jesus rescues us from false perceptions. And he restores us to the glory that we were made for. And it is through Jesus that we will begin to live for what we were created for, namely the glory of God. Yahweh. He's the creator God, and he is the most important person. And we were created to enjoy his glory. But that's not all that this psalm says. 
Let me turn to the second glorious truth about God in the psalm. Yahweh is our Savior. Yahweh is our Savior. The psalm in verse 3 says, We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. When, when God created everything, He created them good. But instead of living in dependence on God, man chose to rebel against God. He wanted glory for himself. In fact, he wanted to be like God. And so he rejected God and sin entered and destroyed God's good creation. Do you know what happened? Shame, guilt, fear, pain, separation, hurt, envy, greed, and death characterized this world. From Genesis 3. Sin corrupted us and became our master. We serve sin now out of love for sin and a hatred for God. And that's who we really are. But in spite of the corruption that our sin has brought to this good world, God chose to bless the nations. And he did that by forming a nation first. The nation of Israel was created by God and it was a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. And he did not just create a nation, he made them his people. And he did that not because these people loved God, but because God loved them. The people knew and tasted God's love, his mercy and his steadfast love. And hence, this psalm is a call to remember the mercies of God that they've enjoyed. God has not dealt with them as their sins deserve. They have tasted God's forgiveness. The mercy of God produces praise for God. God removed their transgressions and he established a covenant with them. He made them his people. But God's plan was not just for the nation of Israel. His plan was that through this nation, other nations would be blessed. But Israel failed. They failed. They exchanged the glory of God for other things. But Israel's failure did not make God a failure. God sent his son, Jesus, the true Israel, to save us from our sins. And so when Jesus came, he said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus, the good shepherd, the humble shepherd, the gentle shepherd, the tender-hearted one, took our sins after having obeyed God Perfectly, and he died selflessly on the cross by becoming sin so that sinners like us can be saved from the righteous judgment of God. And it is when we turn from our sins to this gentle, glorious, good shepherd named Jesus that we will receive the forgiveness of sins and enjoy life and glory. If there is anyone here who has not believed in what Jesus has done for sin-loving people, please see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Mercy and grace comes to us through Jesus. See the compassion of God on the cross. Flee from your sins, friends. Flee from your sins that will bring you judgment and embrace Christ where you will receive forgiveness.
But do you see how Yahweh relates to his children in verse 3? It says, we are the sheep of his pasture. The picture is that of a shepherd's care toward his sheep. The, the, the shepherd has a unique, special interest for his sheep. He never leaves the sheep unattended. He cares for the sheep by being with them, knowing their needs, and even meeting with their needs regularly, daily. No sheep is ever neglected by the shepherd. The Jewish nation, the Israelites, had tasted the shepherd care of Yahweh because they were the sheep of his pasture. This is true not just concerning the nation of Israel. This is true about the church. Jesus, the good shepherd, cares for his church because they are his people. First Peter 2 and verse 10 says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. And so we enjoy the care of the good shepherd because Jesus made us his people. And what does, what does that care of the good shepherd look like? Let me read for you 2 Corinthians 1 verses 3 and 4. Paul says, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comforts, who comforts us in all our afflictions. So brothers and sisters, if you're struggling with grief this morning, or with pain, and, and you're struggling with loss and you're hurt, if you're battling doubts this morning, you really do not know what to do or who to talk to, and you've been spending sleepless nights, look at the glory of God in that verse. See how God is presented. See his glory. The Father is characterized by mercy. Here's the tender-hearted God who cannot be stationary when he sees his sheep struggle. He is moved with a passionate desire to encourage and give all that his children need for strength, strength in pain. And he says he's the God of all comfort. Whatever kind of comfort is needed, whatever its nature, you can be sure that God will supply it. That's the good shepherd of the sheep. And it is because, and it is because that our father is the good shepherd and he meets with our needs that the struggling Christian, the Christian in pain, the Christian who is weak, who can actually confess, when I am weak, then I am strong. And we enjoy this because we are the sheep of his pasture. Rejoice. Rejoice. Rejoice that we are the sheep of his pasture. And as his sheep, we can be sure that the shepherd cares for us. Let me share you the, the last point. The last truth about God mentioned in verse 5 that reveals us his glory. Yahweh is good. Yahweh is good. The emphasis here in that verse is not on what God does, but on who he is. He does good things because he's good by nature. That's his 
character. And so when Moses wanted to see the glory of God, the Lord replied that he will cause all his goodness to pass in front of him. And so as the Lord passed by, he proclaimed the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. God's goodness is so closely tied to other attributes that when you taste his compassion, his grace, his love, and his faithfulness, it is an overflow of his goodness toward us. And so here in verse 5, when you see the steadfast love and the faithfulness of God, it is an overflow of his goodness toward us. And here's the beauty of God's goodness. It does not change with circumstances. It is our understanding of God that changes when our circumstances change. God is always good. And the change in our understanding of God is because of a change in our heart. We think that if things go well, then God is good. So we have made our circumstances decide who our God is. We think that because God is good, only good things should happen to us. But the Bible tells us that we have brought sin into this world and our sin has corrupted this world. It is our sin that has destroyed the goodness with which God created this world. And so when we face difficulties and sufferings in life, it is not because... God is not good. It's an evidence that the world is in need of redemption. We all need deliverance from God. And there is going to be a day when there will be righteousness, justice, and peace that will rule, that will reign. And that day is coming. But what's our hope till then? As we think about the goodness of God. The good news for us is that in our suffering and in our afflictions, in our difficulties, God is with us and he redeems us through our suffering because he's a good God. God redeems us through our suffering because he's a good God. I know of a Christian named Priscilla She stays in a forest area in the central part of India. A few years back, she had a very difficult conversation with a fellow church member. There was great confusion, hurt and anger. She was upset and she prayed to God. God, why would you bring this difficult person into my life? How could you do that? A few days later, she said, if God hadn't ordained this conversation for me, I would not have known how wicked I am. And then she ended by saying, God is good. There is redemption 
through difficulties, and only God can do that. He does it because he's a good God. So brothers and sisters, rejoice that our God is not just sovereign, but he's also good. But God's goodness is seen in his steadfast love for his people. The steadfast love is his initiative out of his goodness to give himself totally to the good of his children, even when they choose not to trust him, even when they choose unfaithfulness. And this love is not dependent on us, but on the covenant God has made with us through his son, Jesus. Do you know what that means? That means God's steadfast love does not change with the size of our faith. It is not dependent on how big our faith is, but on how secure our Savior is. God will pursue us for our good and for His glory because we have an indestructible Savior. He is the guarantee of God's steadfast love. And so if you're seated here this morning and you're doubtful of God's presence, His care, and His devotion toward you, remind yourself, Philippians 1 verse 6, He who began a good work in you will finish it till the day of Christ. He began a good work, that's grace. He will complete it, that's His commitment. Rejoice. Rejoice that God will not and cannot Abandon his children. He will pursue us till the end. That's his commitment. But God's goodness is also seen in his faithfulness toward his people. I noticed while studying this psalm that steadfast love and faithfulness are found together in quite a few verses in the Bible. So if you look at Deuteronomy 7 in Psalm 36, in Lamentations 3, in Genesis 32, you'll find them together. And so I'm convinced that there is a strong connection between the two. But how are they related? If you look at 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 3, there's an answer for us. That's another verse in the New Testament. 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 3, and this is what Paul says. I think he's trying to help us answer this question. How is the faithfulness of God connected to the steadfast love of God? This is what Paul says. God is faithful. He will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. Well, God is faithful. That means he will keep his word. You can believe that what he said he will do, he will do it. But what did he say that he would do? Well, give strength and protect us from the evil one. That's his steadfast love. Can I believe that? Yes. Why? Well, because he's faithful. Faithfulness has to do with God's reliability. Steadfast love has to do with his commitment to his children. You can be sure about the steadfast love of God because God cannot lie, will not lie. He will keep his word. Faithfulness means you can count on God. You can. And so when 1 John 1 verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Believe it, friends. He will cleanse us and he will forgive us. I don't have to think that God is going to keep the sin between him and me. He will remove it. 
He's not going to bring that in our relationship. Why? Well, because he said it. He said it. And he cannot lie. So in John 10 and verse 28, when Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them from my hands, you can be sure that your salvation is secure in Jesus' hands. Why? Well, because Jesus said it. Jesus is the faithful one, not the lying one. You can trust him. You are safe and secure because of Jesus. And when Hebrews 13 and verse 5 says, I will never leave you or forsake you, you can be sure that God is with you now and always because God never lies. When Jesus said in John 14, verses 2 and 3, I will come again and will take you to myself that you may be where I am. You can be sure that Jesus is coming back. How do I know? Jesus said it. And he's faithful. He will keep his word. He's a faithful one. Brothers and sisters, see the glory of God in this psalm. Yahweh is our creator God, and he has created us for glory, that we may enjoy God's glory. Yahweh is our savior. He has saved glory thieves from sins to himself. But Yahweh is also good. He's a God of steadfast love and a faithful one. Beholding God helps our souls. It brings us joy. And so if there is anyone here who does not know this God, may the glory of God in this psalm draw you to God in faith and repentance. May God be your joy today. Maybe some of you are seated here this morning fighting anxiety and you're left wondering if God cares. Let me invite you to consider the shepherd heart of God, the God of all comfort. Maybe you're angry with God because struggles seem to have no end and you've been praying for freedom from difficulties. You've begun to doubt the goodness of God. Brothers and sisters, circumstances will change. God will not. Because he who has called you is faithful. He never lies. Let's pray. O Spirit of God, by your gracious and powerful work in our hearts, cause us to see the glory of Jesus. And upon seeing Jesus, bless our hearts, O God, with lasting joy and confidence in God. God, rescue those blind people. Open their eyes that they may see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. We pray this because we desire Jesus' glory. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.